Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. This is the second lecture I'm doing today on a Saturday, like I do often. And I'm going to try to finish our discussion of reductionism in biology and also, of course, intermediary metabolism and some of the um, significant involvement of intermediary metabolism and the exclusion and inclusion of pathways that otherwise mitigate the entire process homeostatically. And we were talking about, we were, we were finishing off on glyoxylate, and that's exactly where I'm going to be right now. So the glyoxylate cycle is more of a bypass circuit in the TCA because it conforms to an to an ordered biochemical paradigm. But the glyoxylate cycle is not a cycle. It's a specific pathway to incorporate immediately available fatty acid from triacylglycerol into glucose without articulating any particularly new transport systems, or more importantly, by altering the redox status of the cell, particularly as it relates to the mitochondria versus the cytoplasm, or in the case of oil seeds, of course, the glyoxisome or the peroxisome, perhaps in some uh, lower animals. If it occurred in animal systems, higher animals, it would likely be found in the peroxisome. So the issue in animals is not glucose. So essentially, you could speculate that the conversion of depot fat to carbohydrate via gluconeogenesis would not be selected during, during molecular evolution, nor would it be maintained because ambulatory heterotrophs consume protein in the diet. And proteolysis and then associated amino acid degradation pathways will give enough carbon to support glucose levels in the blood while the adipose tissue is providing ultimately the energy to carry out that limit gluconeogenesis. There's also ample carbohydrate in the diet, but since the body is very efficient in making glucose and not so good at storing it, think of glycogen, for example, the only limited amount of glycogen can be stored, and that's because glycogen requires hydration, whereas triacylglycerol does not. So the mass of an animal would be increased a couple of fold if we stored glycogen at the level of mass that we can store adipose. Unfortunately, we store adipose well beyond what is necessary between meals. But the human metabolism evolved as a hunter-gatherer. Therefore, 
we didn't store any great amount of adipose because there were long periods of fasting and near starvation to the next feast. And that's only in the last couple of hundred thousand years. Maybe if you want to go a little bit longer than that, not quite even one million years of biochemical evolution. It's not very much when you think about uh, the overall biochemical evolution, which has been billions of years. And then consider also that agriculture, modern agriculture, which was invented by human beings only 10,000 years, maybe 12,000 years ago at the outside. And because we learned how to husband animals and to cultivate crops, we generated calorically dense environments such that ample amount of food was much more likely than the hunter-gatherer that we evolved from. And that's only in the last, again, as I said, 10,000 years. Now, there has been massive famines, as you know, if you know anything about history. And even there are times of famines, uh, you know, in recent times that are usually caused by uh, political um, uh, despots. And what you understand is that right now in the world, we have more calorically dense foods available, no matter the poverty level of almost all the people. There are still locations where uh, there isn't an obesity epidemic, but in most of the world, there is an obesity epidemic. So just the opposite is occurring. And this is what's resulting in all the different diseases that are generated usually because of longevity in a calorically dense environment. And these are linked to obesity. And you know, I've lectured about this many times from the biochemical perspective. This isn't, so, this isn't the so, social or sociological um, lecture. It's only biochemical. Right? So let's, and let's go right back into it. I wanted to explain a little bit more detail about the oil seed. Now, the oil seed doesn't carry out the glyoxylate cycle in the mitochondrion. No. It actually utilizes, as I mentioned, a specialized organelle called the glyoxazome. Now, you also find this in certain parasites, some human parasites, actually, and uh, other animal parasites, but also um, that kind of organization in lower eukaryotes is found more often. And, and if it's not the glyoxazome that's carrying out a glyoxylate cycle, it is the peroxisome. Okay. So humans don't have a glyoxisome. We do have peroxisomes, and we've already discussed this. But let me remind you that in the oil seed, okay, so you get a clear idea of what's happening. I want to make sure because it's authentic biochemistry. And plant biochemistry is my, um, those are my roots, okay? You break down lipids in the oil seed, storage, storage triacylglycerol, free fatty acids are made, acyl-CoA is generated. Acyl-CoAs are used in the glyoxazome to condense with oxaloacetic acid to generate citrate. So citrate synthase is an enzyme in that specialized organelle called the glyoxazome. Now, the second enzyme that is important uh, for the features of the rest of this reaction is the fact that 
citrate is converted to isocitrate, also in the glyoxazone. Okay, so that enzyme is a conotase. Now, isocitrate lyase, then, remember that's the key unique enzyme in the glyoxylate pathway, generates glyoxylate, a two carbon, uh, very important intermediate in this process, and succinic acid. And then remember that malate synthase will take acetyl CoA from the beta oxidation of acyl CoA in the glyoxazone. And we'll incorporate the acetyl-CoA uh, to sy synthesize malate, malate synthase. Then the malate is converted to oxaloacetic acid, and the pathway continues. Now, notice, when we discussed it as if it were a mitochondrial origin, we said, well, the OAA can leave the cell via the malate aspartate shuttle. I went through all of those systems with you. And I, I hopefully... You get the picture in your mind very clearly what I meant by that, carbon flows, how redox is maintained, right? But actually in the oil seed, in the oil seed itself, OAA doesn't leave the glyoxazome. No, the succinic acid leaves the glyoxazome. Succinic acid leaves the glyoxazome and transported via carboxylic transporters between the glyoxazome and the mitochondrion of the oil seed. Then succinate is taken into the mitochondrion and used to synthesize using the TCA cycle, malate. Then <laughs> malate uh, produces oxaloacetic acid via the malate dehydrogenase. Then it's the oxaloacetic acid then that leaves the mitochondrion of the oil seed. Ultimately, of course, you know, pepcarboxykinase making phosphorylopyruvate. And then the generation of the of the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, dihydroxyacetone phosphate, after going through phosphoglyceric acid, right, 1,3-PGA and PGA, making DAP and GAP, and then condensing those two to generate fructose um, uh, phosphate, and ultimately fructose 6-phosphate, glucose 6-phosphate, and then glucose. And then actually fructose and glucose are synthesized in dual pathways to generate sucrose. Because remember, sucrose is the uh, translocatable sugar in higher plants. Okay? Now that, of course, obviously does not happen in the animal systems. Okay, So I just want to make that clear because, um, you know, again, it's authentic biochemistry. Now, let's, go, let's think about, let's go back to the animals now. We're finished with the plants. Sometime I will do some great straightforward plant biochemistry lectures because that is my those are my roots and i like doing it but i don't know how many people are really interested in plant biochemistry um but i cer certainly send me a message and let me know but let's go back now to the mammalian system and particularly uh biomedicine so you know there is an association between glycemic control and cardiovascular disease risk this is all part and parcel of obesity so prolonged exposure to hyperglycemia induces alterations in the vascular system that can accelerate the atherosclerotic process. So often you think of atherosclerosis as being a lipid-based, and it does have a large component because of foam cell organization in circulating macrophages causing um, reactive oxygen species, and then ultimately an inflammatory response 
in uh, in the uh, vascular system. But carbohydrates, too, play a major role in atherosclerosis. And that's because glucose can be used to glycosylate proteins and lipids in circulation. And that glycosylation does what? It changes the solubility of those lipids and those proteins. Change the solubility, you can alter the aggregation potential of circulating proteins and lipids. And in so doing, you can start to generate an atherosclerotic plaque. Okay. Now, the other thing is that carbohydrates can also induce oxidative stress and turning on the protein kinase C. The protein kinase C has a lot of downstream sequelae, which can lead to pro-inflammatory responses. So I also should mention that there is plenty of evidence of epigenetic modifications even in atherosclerosis, but in obesity in general. And I have discussed this in great detail in the other arcs of lectures I've done over the last couple of years. I'll just here just sprinkle through a couple of common concepts. Epigenetic modifications, of course, involve a direct interaction with internal and external environmental conditions. What kind of condition can we describe here? How about hyperglycemia? How about hypertriglyceridemia? Those are two features of obesity. And that will alter gene expression because it will have a direct effect metabolically and via covalent modification and ultimately transcription factors leading to an alteration of DNA methylation, the production of non-coding RNAs, such as microRNAs, and also the LNCs. And of course, our family of histone modifications for the histone code, and the interaction between those three kind of epigenetic markers. So when those processes exist throughout a lifetime because of hyperglycemic um, status, because of obesity, and because of the lack of Again, glycemic control because you get insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes, which again, we've detailed in great uh, uh, confidence over the last several years in lecture. Histone acetylation comes from, as you know, acetyl-CoA. What do we just say about acetyl-CoA? Well, when you get beta oxidation of fatty acids in the hepatic mitochondrion, and those fatty acids are ultimately going to be, you know, generating acetyl-CoA, right? And you're making ketone bodies. Remember that what can happen is that the utilization of the NADH and FADH2, and because of the enzymes in beta oxidation becoming overloaded, because remember, the long-chain fatty acids coming in, coming in from circulation because of obesity with high levels of circulating triacylglycerol, high levels of circulating acyl-CoAs associated with serum albumin coming into the liver, translocating back to the liver, generating that fatty liver we talked about. Those fatty acids will directly cause lipotoxicity and the triacylglycerol that builds up as well will start to form the, the lipid that's part of the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease which can then generate, you remember, hepatitis, 
right? Sometimes uh, a, a sclerotic uh, association of that hepatitis can occur. And then ultimately one major conduit to hepatocellular carcinoma, right? So you know that, you know the detail of those responses. But remember that we talked about the canonical histone 3-lysine-9 acetylation, and that's going to greatly alter gene expression. And again, remember that high levels of acetyl-CoA can be utilized to generate high levels of acetylated histones, thus altering gene expression outside what is the normal sphere required to stay homeostatic, even under stress response. All right. So histone acetylation, remember, is a dynamic process, a dynamic epigenetic process. It's regulated by those enzymes called histone acetyltransferases and histone deacetylases, or the HDACs and the class of HDACs known as sirtuins, which we spent a lot of time on in the aging arc of lectures in 2021 and in leading into 2022. Now, all of that will involve a great deal of mobilization of acetate. And because of that, the level of acetyl-CoA relative in the nucleus for acetylation to lysine residues becomes the proximal and the distal organization around that change in epigenetic gene expression. Okay. Since glucose is a major source for acetyl-CoA production, and we know this because of pyruvate dehydrogenase. Now, you also know that pyruvate dehydrogenase can be inhibited and thus make more OAA. So if you're increasing the amount of oxaloacetic acid in the hepatocyte and you're running the aspartate shuttle, forget now all about the oxalate cycle because it's not there, right? You're going to have all the energy needed in terms of NADH and FADH2 to make ATP to drive gluconeogenesis. And as insulin reception becomes insensitive because of necrotic and other lipotoxic and glucotoxic activities in the B cells of the pancreas, okay, in the beta cells of the pancreas where you get insulin secretion, you start to get from the type 2 diabetes this insulin resistance. And again, insulin resistance is going to yield up high circulating glucose, high circulating free fatty acid, and all the toxicity associated with that. Okay? So those are really important uh, paradigms to keep in mind here that I want to emphasize because if you want to talk about the major pathology that's occurring, making people have more trips to the clinic and more issues as they age with metabolic disorders, with cancers and cardiovascular disease, which are the major killers. It is obesity. And the obesity epidemic, if anything, has increased in the last couple of years. You know what I mean. So all this is associated with what we call dyslipidemia. And again, hopefully you'll remember this from many of my previous lectures, what we're talking about high circulating fatty acid associated with serum albumin, a lot of fatty acyl-CoA metabolism 
which can block glycolysis in the liver by increasing ATP production through NAD and FAD reduction because of beta oxidation. So high NADH itself, which is a product of pyruvate dehydrogenase, will block it. Glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase can also be blocked with high cytosolic NADH. And remember, we talked about the, the PDH kinase, the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase enzyme being activated because of acetyl-CoA, which builds up, okay? So you're blocking that PDH enzyme, and you're blocking the cell that prepositive dehydrogenase. So glycolysis is suffering in the liver. So that then remember what we're talking about with insulin binding to its receptor. We went through this in a little bit of detail at the very end of the last lecture. Remember I told you that the glucose transporters become inhibited. So in the muscle tissue, insulin binds to an insulin receptor, and the insulin receptor helps for, with the uh, tyrosine receptor kinase phosphorylation of the insulin receptor substrate 1, 2, right? However, the free fatty acids that are in circulation will induce protein kinase C theta, which will block the IRS 1, 2 cascade. Because that's blocked, IRS-1-2 won't turn on the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase cascade, which would otherwise activate protein kinase B, which would facilitate GLUT4 translocation to the plasma membrane. Now, if that's not enough of an insult, free fatty acids will also directly inhibit glucose uptake with the GLUT4. It'll cause the GLUT4 uh, translocase to be endocytose back into the uh, myocyte. Okay? Yes, indeed. Now, in the liver, you have GLUT2. Now, GLUT2 isn't brought up in the same way by that whole pathway I just told you about. But what happens there is free fatty acids also cause the endocytosis of the GLUT2 translocase. Okay? But the insulin will not function through the IRS 1, 2 in the liver. So we don't have insulin-dependent glucose uptake in the liver. But insulin still works. And what does it do normally? Remember, high circulating glucose, high insulin when everything's working fine, right? The pre-diabetic, non-diabetic state. But with all this free fatty acid, once again, you're going to turn on protein kinase C theta in the liver. That's going to block insulin receptor uh receptor tyrosine kinase activity on the insulin receptor substrate 1, 2, that, that adapter protein. So you're not going to get PI, uh, PI3 kinase. You're not going to get PKB. So the result of all of that normally would have been knocking down gluconeogenesis and increasing glycolysis. Because in the liver, protein kinase B does that. It, because protein kinase B is not turned on because of what I just described you from free fatty acids. Rather than that, you get rampant gluconeogenesis and you get a tanking of glyco uh, glycolysis, as I just mentioned, the molecular details thereof. Okay. So you got now the picture of what's going on, I think, you know, in a little bit better detail. Now, let's walk up here and get all the way on top of Pike's Peak and let's talk about simply 
the relationship between obesity, insulin resistance, and dyslipidemia. When you get central obesity or adiposity, you get an increase in free fatty acids. The increase in free fatty acids, as I now just redescribed, will generate insulin resistance. That's going to cause an increase in apolipoprotein B in circulation, as well as hepatic lipase in the hepatocyte. What's the result of all this? Increase in circulating triacylglycerol, decrease in circulating high-density lipoprotein, and a huge increase in small, dense, because of the increase in apolipoprotein B, small, dense uh, LDL. Okay, low density lipoprotein. Now that's because you're going to have a synthesis of apolipoprotein B in the liver. And that's what's going to deliver then high levels of v, first VLDL, then IDL, the very low, very low density lipoprotein, the intermediate density lipoprotein, low then the LDL, and then the small dense LDL, all of which will cause havoc and dyslipidemia in the circulatory system. Okay. So again, that was a 14,000 foot level, but it's all part of the pathophysiology, of course, right? All right. So got a couple more minutes left. So let's just remember this now. Let's bring in a couple of um, inflammatory markers. Overweight is going, uh, when you're overweight, you're going to start generating more reactive oxygen, and that's going to turn on tumor necrosis factor alpha because of free fatty acids. That will then induce one of the levels of insulin resistance. That can lead to metabolic syndrome. And when metabolic syndrome occurs, of course, that's when insulin is elevated, blood sugar is still normal, triacylglycerol circulatory is high, high-dose lipoprotein starts to tank, and blood pressure increases because of the effect on the kidneys. Pancreas tries to compensate for that. So what it's doing is trying to pump out more insulin. But because you have increasing gluconeogenesis, for the reasons I just told you, with the glutes, for example, uh, so a lot of circulating glucose and also a lot of gluconeogenesis because you don't have any control any longer over the production of oxalacetic acid. Uh, and then, of course, pepcarboxykinase activity is relieved from its altered state of allosteric control for similar reasons that the pyruvate dehydrogenase is. Pancreas can't compensate any longer. You get type 2 diabetes, which means rampant uh, hyperinsulinemia to begin with, and then insulin no longer can compensate at all in the destruction of the beta cells. And this is because of free circulating glucose, free circulating fatty acids in the form of serum albumin and a lot of insulin. Insulin can also kill the beta cells. So then you get Insulin's higher than normal, at least initial stages of type 2 diabetes, obesogenic. Blood sugar remains really high, high circulating blood glucose. Triacylglycerol is uh, super high in the blood. HDL remains low because apolipoprotein modifications, you're not getting recirculation back to the liver. And it wouldn't matter anyways if the liver is being bombarded by low-density lipoprotein binding to its receptor. And you maintain high blood pressure. So that is a terrible situation to be in, right? And that's exactly what happens in the obesogenic state. It's exactly where you are. And this can start in, you know, at any age. Younger and younger people are becoming obese. Remember I told you about the sucrose. 
high sucrose in the diet is a leading risk factor. I wouldn't say it's a cause, but by all intents and purposes, if you have a high caloric density uh, food intake, it doesn't really matter which form of the calories they're in. But particularly if that high caloric density food is high in sucrose, and many foods are high in sucrose, which again is the translocatable sugar from not animals, not found animals, in plants. So having a high plant diet, particularly a lot of fresh fruit, gives you lots of sucrose. Okay, Plus sucrose is used to sweeten foods, as you know. All that's going to do is exacerbate the whole problem even more and more and more. So I already went through that. So in diabetes, insulin sensitivity results in rampant liver gluconeogenesis along with beta oxidation. There's no glyoxylate cycle there, of course. What you ultimately get is hepatic fatty acid, lipotoxicity. You get central nervous system glucotoxicity. You get steatohepatitis. You get reactive oxygen-induced inflammation. And I'm going to leave you with that for now because we're just about out of time. So this is lecture number seven in this Rhapsody, actually a continuation of all those variations such as Partitas. I hope you're enjoying some of the music I've been putting in there uh, in the show notes, because I listen to that kind of music and it is inspiring and as well as delightful. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Again, still on the 4th of February, 2023, saying bye for now.